As we think about it, we've been going through the series, uh, doctrinal series on God, God the Father, and who is God. And uh, we are on number six, and uh, coming back through this, and as I was thinking uh, last time I spoke, we talked a little bit about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And what I wanted to address, what we're going to address this morning, and we probably won't make it through, and you say, thankful, whoa, that's a good thing, because it would be a little long. So it's, I'll, I'll, I'll change it and make it two parts. So those of you who aren't here next week, you might miss it out. But um, we are going to look at this morning a proper view of God and evil. Not good and evil, but God and evil. Because what often happens is, as we think about it, people, the first question, they say, if God is God, you know, it's so good, why does he allow bad things to happen? The source of evil. And theologically, as we've begun this series, we've looked at the belief that, first of all, there is a God. Genesis 1.1. The Bible doesn't try to prove that, but Genesis 1.1, Romans 1.20, there is a God. And he has revealed himself to us in Scripture and in the person of Jesus Christ and through the person of the Holy Spirit. And we looked at that even in the Trinity, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. But yet God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the um, Holy Spirit. So I get my triangles mixed up. That's what happens when I use my hands. So, but uh, you can tell I'm not Italian because Italians like to use their hands, but I get directionally challenged. But understanding that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it is a concept, while we don't completely understand it, it is, doesn't mean that it's not true. And so it's clear from Scripture, though, that mankind is different from God. And really, we are inferior. We don't become a God. But God is a holy God and separate from all sin and evil. And secondly, we understand that mankind, we are sinful and guilty before God. And then also, because of sin, is sin's influence, all of us are evil in our actions and actually deserve judgment. We are guilty. We deserve judgment. We don't like to think that. We like to think that there's always innate good. Good outweighs the evil in us. While some of you are good behaviorally, some of you probably can behave better than others. Some of you probably have some devious uh, pranks or uh, things that you'd like to do. But ultimately, understanding that no matter if you have a, a little more good, before God, we are all guilty and we are all sinful. And therefore, we deserve... Um, the judgment of God. Jeremiah 4.22, it states and says, For my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are silly children. They have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. And understanding is that we are not good before God. There is none good. So we're going to look at this morning a proper view of God and evil. Not good and evil, but God and evil. Because as we look at it, where did evil come from? Is God the source of it? And why does God even allow evil? I don't think it takes too long for us as we look in the news and look at other areas of the evil that is in the world. Grant, I think most people would agree with that, that there is evil. But also as we perceive and define that. But uh, before we begin, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity we have to open your word. Lord, I thank you for the word of God. 
it is a supernatural book that you have allowed to come into our possession. But it's also a history book of you working through people's lives. And Lord, you provided it for us to be able to read it, to understand it. And Lord, I thank you that it is truth. Because it gives us truth. It helps us to, helps us to know what truth is. That you are truth. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us and guide us. Help us to recognize your work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the first thing we're going to look at, if you're following along in your notes, we're going to see proper view of God and evil. So we'll see some steps in there. But first of all, we're going to see that God is holy. You know, we talk about praising God. We always hear that God is love. God is merciful. God is just. But one of the essential and important characteristics that God cannot exist without it is the fact that God is holy. He is perfect, separate, without sin or imperfection. And this is an essential starting point because the Bible specifically mentions that God is perfect and holy. If you hold your spot and go to Psalm 99, or hold your spot, go to Psalm 99. Psalm 99, we understand a brief look at the inside of the fact that God is holy. And when we think about the holiness of God, the fact that he is perfect, but also separate from sin, this standard... And as we think about it, you know, perfection, it is hard for us to understand because everything is marred and tainted by sin. Maybe it's um, when you were younger, you had something and received it as a gift uh, or a car. If you've ever bought, I won't say, oh, if you ever had a brand new car. And it's different if you, have, if you bought a brand new car or if you were given a new car, especially on how you treat it. But you know, it never stays new for long. Any item, whether it be a pair of shoes, whether it be clothing. And you know, pretty soon, it doesn't look that new. It isn't new anymore. But a state of perfection, understanding that God is holy. This is a proper understanding. And it says in Psalm 99, and if you follow along, I'll read verses 1 through 5. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells within the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. This is an enthronement song, what they would say, um, actually sing as one who comes in position of a king or a regal and exalting the holiness and understand that God's kingship or his worthiness as ruler brings about fear and trembling and a great respect, but to understand that he is worthy and sitting before God, understand that he is holy, separate from sin. Not only as we think about holiness, there was a awe as we think about Moses, and before the mountain, it says, do not touch it because there's a consequence for it. Because God is holy and separate from sin, you will die. And uh, there is a separation. And God, as a holy God, he cannot allow sin or imperfection, nor any evil thought or deed, it says in Job 34, 12. You know, it's only because of a God that we can have an ideal, perfect, and complete standard. 
to understand what a perfection is. Sometimes we think about a people, oh, you know, they're 10, or, or that person is, you know, the standard. Whether it be in sports, we look at, you know, who is the goat? Now, it doesn't mean blah, blah, but a goat, if you know sports lingo, what does it mean? Greatest of all time. You know, and the perfect standard that we have is God because he is the greatest of all time. And he's manifested or demonstrated, shown that through us, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I, if um, I think about, imagine having to grow up with Jesus or being one of his family members or, you know, just in any person. You know, if, if you grew up or maybe you went to school and you had someone who was always getting A's, you know, they're the class pet. Back in the 80s, they would say, oh, you know, they're the class nerd or, or things like that. We'd use derogatory terms. Some of it was jealousy. Some of it was, you know, just because you want to make fun of them because you could never reach their standard. But here, God is holy and separate from sin. And this is an ideal, and it relates to even our ethics and morals are derived from the fact that there's a perfect standard. Think about it behaviorally. Okay, I want you to behave in a certain way morally or even uh, understand that emotionally. You know, the problem is we're controlled by our circumstances. We're worried and concerned about what other people think of us. Imagine if you had to walk out in front of people, you know, that you don't know, and they're looking at you, and you're thinking, okay, is everything all right? Do I have toothpaste on my face? You know, you're all concerned about all these things. And then imagine if you found out that there was something about you. You know, you'd be all embarrassed because we're concerned about what others think. But if you could wake up looking perfect, you know, and, you know, without a wrinkle, without a, a messed up hair or or just in, in a standard of perfect, you'd be like, yes, this is great. This is life. But God is an ultimate standard, not in that, but also understand in, in moral and ethic. He does what is right. He chooses what is right. He knows what is right and completes that. So we need to start with that to understand that because we often question God in circumstances. Why did you allow that to happen? Don't you know that that person is sinning? Don't you know? Why did you? Sometimes we say, God, why did you allow me to do that? But the Most High is morally spotless in character, in action, in essence. Part of his nature, who he is, what he consists of. He is pure and untainted with evil desires, motives, thoughts, words, or acts. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I know I was a mischievous kid. I like to pull practical jokes. I, I know how to do many things. And I went to college, too. You know, I know how to penny jam or battery lock someone in, even when the lock is on the inside. There's just things I, I know how to do. And, you know, and it's funny because sometimes unbelievers, you know, if, if you do anything that I would say is, quote, unquote, mischievous, not necessarily sinful or bad, they think, like, what's wrong with you? I thought you were a Christian. It's like, aren't Christians allowed to have a sense of humor? But, you know, the standard understanding, but our thoughts and our motives. Now, the problem is our mind. It is a battle of the mind because even our thoughts toward evil things, toward sinful things, and that is a challenge when we see something, when we desire something, when we lust after things. For the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. We're not holy, but God is. And God is eternally and unchangeably holy. What that means is that there was no beginning for God. But from the time that we first encountered or un had our relationship or understood the concept of God, he was holy then. 
and he's been holy for the period of time that mankind has known God, and he will continue to be holy in the future as well. See, the problem is us. We learn behaviorally that, oh, you know, as a good kid, you know, growing up, okay, do something nice, you know, behave. But guess what? We still have a sinful nature. We behave sinful. And so we are plagued and affected by sin. While we are, are modified our behavior, we can kind of try to live good, we are still sinful. And until the time where we are in the presence of God, because what Jesus Christ has done, he has provided a way that we can be before a holy God. It's not on our own account. But God is holy. And that's important to understand because as we look at evil, the second thing we want to see is the fact that God has permitted evil. Let's go to Isaiah 45, 7. Isaiah 45, 7. Isaiah 45, talking about Cyrus, and as we look here in 45, 7. And I'll start in verse 5 to give you a little bit of context. Says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know me from the rising of the sun to its setting, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. I was going to look it up as far as in a, one more so that you see that word sometimes create calamity. Sorry, I like to use sometimes different versions as well for you to be able to understand and hear it. And it says in 45, verse 7, it says, I create disaster. Now, sometimes we think God creates disaster. What does that mean? Most of you, in, in looking at what is disaster, I could say, okay, guess what? You were a teenager once. Probably your room looked like a disaster. Or maybe you've heard the term, you know, it looks like a tornado went through your room. But it's not like that. Disaster, when we think about natural disasters, God is in control of those things. And does, is God, why does God use that? Why does God allow that? But God has permitted evil, but he is not the causal agent of evil. Because how we define evil and how, how we look at evil. See, a truthful and real perspective of God must not view him as the causal agent. However, circumstances that can be perceived or identified as evil are often permitted of God. When we view these natural disasters, an earthquake, or events that take out, you know, a thousand people. When we lived in Peru, there's an earthquake that caused a landslide and wiped out 12,000 people at one time. You know, we think, how horrible, how horrific. Why did God allow that? Was that an evil act? Sometimes we think about that. Was that an evil act? Did God do that to take them out? And, and what was the cause of it? We want to know the answers. Humanly speaking, we're inquisitive. But to say that God is an evil scientist, as we think about that comic of an evil scientist who's just looking to cause trouble and evil, he says, oh, there's some people I want to take them out. That's not the nature of God. John Mueller states, though God is in no way the cause of actual sin or of evil deeds, yet he is the, 
Yet he is the author of evil in the sense of tribulation or affliction. In the sense of God allowing things to happen, tribulation, affliction. There's a difference between trials and, and I just thought, lost the word. If you, I'll start with this. As a trial, as we think about a trial coming into our life, God allows trials and tribulations to come into our life. Is it because he's an evil God and just wants us to see us fail, wants us to see us sin? No, part of it is that we might learn about him, trust in him, even develop character. If you're ever a Calvin and Hobbes fan, you know, sometimes Calvin is always asking his dad, why do I have to do these things? These are too hard. Why do I have to go to school? Why do I have to learn this? And his dad will always say, it builds character. But sometimes when events come into our lives, it allows spiritual maturity and character building to help us to understand. When you go through difficult times, it builds resilience. It builds a trust upon God. Not in yourself, but upon God. Because the control is taken away. And we like control. But now when it comes time for to try to be a temptation, when, as we think about temptation, God doesn't tempt us. Because Satan's intent is to deceive us, to trick us, to cause us to sin. But in those events, there's always an opportunity if we trust God to, to successfully conquer, overcome those. But it's when we allow our own, and we'll see even later, we allow our, ourselves to come, when we allow uh, the Spirit of God to work in us and through us, can we overcome those temptations? But in and of our own, as we think about this evil, you know, people say, well, why does God allow this to happen to me? Scripture mentioned there that God uses calamities and disasters, sometimes as punishment, sometimes as teaching. We don't always understand because even Isaiah 55, his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts greater than our thoughts. And the challenge is that we're always asking why. We'd like to know. Wouldn't it be nice to know why things occur or why? You know, I'm sometimes one of those who like to think how things run or why did it occur this way so it helped me to respond and prevent it from happening next time. Some people, you know, they don't care. But we're built different ways. But humanly speaking, there's a desire to want to know. And here, we won't always know. And the plans that God has aren't for the purpose of evil. If anything, we know that Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. It's not always good in our viewpoint. If you think about two people who are running, you know, oh, what's, if you're playing a game with your friends or having a competition, if you win, it's like, okay, you win, they lose. Ha, 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 right? Most you like to win. But it's not a competition in the sense that God has just said, okay, you know, we look at it from our own perspective. If I win, I'm happy. If they lose, too bad. I don't care what they think. That's our mentality. But sometimes God has us in a different perspective because when we lose, how do we feel? Mad, sad, you know, sometimes, you know, indifferent. Depends on how competitive you are. If you're competitive, you know how it feels like. You want to win. But sometimes in that position, it allows you to look at and understand. And it's not about just winning. What are your priorities? Because sometimes that desire to win and be first can separate you relationally from others. And it can help you to understand, guess what? Your priorities are messed up. 
So as we go through and view here the plans, we are not witnesses of God's visible acts of wrath towards sin that occurred in the Old Testament. When we look at these events in the Old Testament, the ground opens up. Korah and all his followers are gone because they were against God. We can say, yay, you know what? A good overcame evil. God did that. But then we look at examples where, you know, God allowed the Israelites to completely wipe out men, children. And we think, that's not fair. Why were all those little kids killed? Why did God have all of them wiped out? And we question God. You know, that's not fair in our sense of justice. But we don't know because we understand what the purpose is, whether, you know, that they would have led against it was a punishment because obviously it's sinful or sometimes, you know, one child grows up and then becomes just a vengeance. Understand, it isn't, we try to comprehend that. But our goal shouldn't necessarily be try to empathize or understand everything because it is not God's work for us to completely understand all that goes on in the cosmic events. But we have to trust the one who permits these things to occur. Because what happens is we cannot fairly rationalize a system of justice in which God presides and immediately serves punish to everyone who is disobedient or sinful. Can you imagine if God all of a sudden punished everyone for every bad thing they did? Boy, I think about it. I had a teacher in 7th and 8th grade. I had a teacher, Gladys Small. I still remember because she had a ruler kind of like this. I use this to keep the notes down when the air conditioning goes. And she'd have that ruler and she'd walk around. Sometimes she'd want to get attention students and she'd go, all right, I'm going to pop your hiney. And she would, you know, she meant, I believe she meant it, but she would slap that ruler down and it would be like, you know, at attention. But to understand the whole point is that imagine if you, we were in a system of justice where you were disciplined or received the consequences immediately. You know, we'd be getting punished all the time. So now in the age of grace where God, you know, allows that, but we still have a sense of justice and it's a little bit distorted because we're like, why does God allow that evil? You know, I'm such a good citizen. I behave, you know, I do what's right. And why does God allow that person to, to exist? But we fail to see the sin that is in ours. We, we just put it at a different standard. And so even as we try to define evil, the really evil things, there are some evil things that occurred the Holocaust, just things that occur with small children. We, we, we have a sympathy toward them because humanly we understand and value life. But God, he quickly exhausts our ability to comprehend him because of our sinfulness. You know, it's one thing to overlook our own sin, but it's hard to overlook, you know, when bad things happen to other people. Our reasoning and logical deductions will always prevent us from fully understanding a being that is metaphysically both different and superior to us. If you hold your spot, we'll go back. Um, we're going to go a couple um, verses. Job 26, 14. Job 26, 14. And I'll start in verse 13 to give you that context. By his spirit, he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. 
Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways, and how small a whisper we hear of him. It's actually very beautiful, but the whole point is in trying to understand God. We couldn't even understand a little bit of him, but it says, and how small a whisper we hear of him. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. It's kind of trying to understand him. Oh, you know what? I think I get a glimpse of understanding God by seeing how he works through us. We can have a pretty good grasp in our own idea of who God is, but yet that's just a small, slight fraction of God in his entirety because he is so beyond our comprehension. Uh, one more. Go, if you will, to Romans 11 in the New Testament. Romans chapter 11. <clears throat> Romans chapter 11, 33 and 34. Paul puts it in a beautiful, beautiful prose. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? See, to try to understand the ways of God. As it said, the um, I. Isaiah, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts greater than our thoughts. And so sometimes we try to think, God, look. Look at the circumstances. Why did you allow that? And so the response is, humanly speaking, to understand that God has permitted evil, what it means is that he has purpose in that. And it might not always be what we want it to be. We make quick judgments, say, oh, well, God did this because he hated them, or um, he did it because they're all sinful. And we don't know. That's the hard part. Sometimes we say, well, Satan, he made me do it. Or Satan is the cause. Sometimes people blame Satan for everything. You know, it reminds me of the story. There's a, a few minutes before the church service started and the congregation was sitting in the pews and talking. Suddenly, Satan appeared in the front of the church. Everyone started screaming and running for the back entrance, trampling each other in a frantic way to get rid of the evil incarnate. Soon the church was empty except for one elderly gentleman who sat calmly in his pew without moving, seemingly oblivious to the fact that God's ultimate enemy was in his presence. So Satan walked up to the man and hissed, Do you know who I am? The man replied, Yep, sure do. Aren't you afraid of me? Satan asked. He goes, Nope, sure ain't, said the man. He says, Don't you realize I can kill you with one word? asked Satan. Don't doubt it for a minute, returned the old man with an even tone. Did you know that I can cause you profound and horrifying agony for all eternity, persisted Satan? Yep, was a calm reply. And you're still not afraid, asked Satan? Nope, said the old man. Totally perplexed, finally Satan asked, well, why aren't you afraid of me? The man calmly replied, been married to your sister for 48 years. Now we use that or understanding, maybe you can think of some people are like that, you know, but, but to understand that we know that evil and the source of evil is not Satan's fault, is not, you know, we think, oh, that person is the devil, or maybe it's the child or, or the man. But sometimes we, we, we view that as being the evil source. But why has God allowed them to affect your life? Maybe it's a neighbor. You think, why does God allow these, these evil people around me? Well, maybe it's simply just to show you, for you to show them the picture of Christ. That's the hard part. We don't always understand why God allows evil. But he is not the source of it. 
Looking at the third thing as we move along is that God is blamed for evil. God is blamed for evil. If you go back to Job, Job 1.22, and we see here in Job 1.22 the actions of Job. And in verse 22, it says, In all this, remember what occurs to Job. He loses his wealth, his family. And uh, starting in verse 20, his response says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. I can't imagine that, being able to worship when all that trauma and all that, those events occur in his life. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. He didn't blame God. And yet, that's often our natural response. God, why did you allow this to happen? God, you shouldn't have done it. God, you took away my loved one. God, you caused them to do sick. God, you did this. And so the source of evil, we look at this as God doesn't care about me. And that root of sin develops within us. And then we blame God and say, God, you caused it to happen. And the unsaved, that's, that's what occurs. But if we look at James 1, 13 through 15. James 1, 13 through 15. It says, But no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. See, the challenge is because within each of us is the ability to sin and to do wrong. And we do that. But we've learned to limit that capacity through the Holy Spirit. And others who are unsaved, who do not have the Spirit of God living inside them, they're morally good people. They've learned to control their actions. But yet, they're still sinful people. And they have controlled themselves in the sense that they're not going out and killing and murdering people. But they have that capacity to do that. Each of us have the capacity to do evil beyond what we want to. And it is within a distorted view of God that people have identified, yet properly failed to define evil as a tool used to fairly punish and bring suffering to mankind. How we define evil or look at it. While our concept of justice provokes our sense of fairness and mercy, it brings an emotional transferal of guilt. See, when we see injustice, we cry out, and it's like, oh, that's not fair. And so we have this emotional transferal of guilt because we want to blame someone. It reminds me, there was a, a story of um, a, um, a son and the daughter were in the living room watching TV, and it was the, or excuse me, it was the um, daughter and the father are in the living room watching TV because it was the son's turn to wash dishes. And while the mother was helping, um, and uh, there are... She wanted to make sure it was done right. And so they're out in the kitchen and, you know, the other two are watching TV. And all of a sudden they hear a, a dish break and it goes silence. And the father says, oh, I wonder who broke the dish. And the daughter, you know, wisely says, oh, it was mom because uh, she didn't yell at my brother, you know, at her brother, understanding that. But 
The whole point is we would want to blame someone because if something occurs instantly, whose fault is it? Why did you do this? How do, you, how do we correct it and prevent it from occurring again? In the operating room, when something goes wrong, we talk about the ABCs of surgery. Because anything that goes wrong, it used to be called accuse, blame, and criticize. It's our natural response to want to blame someone. And, but to put the emotional transferal of guilt upon a superior God rather than upon ourselves. You know, most of us don't want to admit when we do something wrong. Even to, to say that we're sorry, to understand what it means to ask for forgiveness. It is hard for the people because in the, in the human search for the cause of evil, blame can be unconsciously cast upon God who is supposed to be ruling the universe, as we saw in Job 1.22. As mentioned and stated, you know, he did not charge God with wrongdoing. Instead, mankind should be focusing on the true agent responsible, their sinful desires that lead to their expression in that act, whereas understanding, oh, wow, Understanding that I am guilty and is my fault. But while individuals may not be the direct agent or cause of evil, they are products of sin and respond in various ways. You know, there's a, uh, this case study. Imagine two children who are in the throes of divorce, feeling its effect but not being the direct cause of the event. They respond in various manners. M. Gary Newman wrote a book on helping kids through divorce, and he presents a case study of two different children's responses. Both feel a sense of alienation, loss, and grief. Youngsters maybe do not always are able to express their emotions, may feel alienated and misunderstood. They may deal with the pain by acting out unacceptably, destructive, or self-defeating. They may harbor unrealistic fantasies that their parents will reunite, or irrational, guilt-inducing fears that they are to blame, that they caused the divorce. All children need a patient's parents' guidance and love to find acceptance and resolution they must achieve to continue growing. You cannot help to lead your child on this journey, but you can try to help know what they feel. Maybe you're here this morning. What often happens is we always look to cast blame. Sometimes it's in the death of a parent or a loved one. Our natural response is, whoa, why did this happen? If I had only done this, or if I hadn't done this, But yet, we must understand that it's not God's fault. It's not your fault in the sense that in God permitting this to occur and to allow our lives to be able to handle it, to deal with it, to understand that this injustice in the world, there is sin in the world. There are things that are going to go bad in the world, but yet God, in his superintending of all the events, also provides a way that, guess what? You can overcome this. There are scars that, that occur in our lives. But there's also healing. And that supernatural healing comes about because there's a supernatural God that seeks to help you through the process. Don't blame God for evil because that's what happens when unbelievers say, they stand up and say, curse you God, why did you allow this to happen? If you did not allow this to happen, it would have been better. The fourth thing we look at and the final thing for today We'll look at some other things next week, but is that God is not the author of evil. 1 John 3, 5. First John 3, 5. 
God is not the author of evil. You think, how can God, who created everything, how can he not be the one who, who caused evil to occur? But we look and understand 1 John 3, 5, where it says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Understanding that in him there is no sin. In Christ, in God, there is no sin. See, and we're going to discuss within the decree of God, there are two different viewpoints. The decrees of God, we'll look at that in just a moment. But first of all, in the first view, theologians such as John Calvin or others believe that God's decree covers and controls everything. Superlapsarianism is a theological term, and it is a view that logically before the creation of mankind, God elected some for salvation, then decreed its fall, requiring sin and rebellion and the redemption of mankind. And theologians struggle to explain evil actions. There's a theologian, even um, Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, he states, it says, if God does indeed cause, through his providential activity, everything that comes about in the world, then the question arises, what is the relationship between God and evil in the world? Does God actually cause the evil actions that people do? If he does, then is God not responsible for sin? In approaching the question, it is best first to read the passages of Scripture that most directly address it. See, we begin by looking at passages that first affirm that God did indeed cause evil events to come about and evil deeds to be done. But we must remember that in all these passages, it is very clear that God, nowhere directly involved in doing anything evil, but rather as bringing about evil deeds through the willing actions of moral creatures in the sense that he is permitting this evil to occur and allowing some people to be as bad as they could be. Where it talks about um, even Pharaoh back in the Egyptians and allowing going after us. It's, um, we read it, it says God hardened his heart. What does that mean? Is God causing them to do evil through them? No, what it is allowing is that they had turned away from God and God is permitting them to bring about the evil acts through that individual who has so hardened and turned away from God. If we think about even the free moral agency, that why would God allow people, create people, or even as we think about angels, who can turn away from him, who can sinful be sinful? Why would God allow that? See, to understand we're not robots. Well, we aren't going to do things that are contrary to our nature. Originally, Adam and Eve the angels, to be able to turn away from God and then to start in the series of events is part of his foreknowledge. He knew that that would occur. And so bringing about these evil deeds through the willing actions of moral creatures, Scripture never blames God for evil or showing God as taking pleasure in evil. God is not the causal agent of evil. And Scripture never excuses human beings for the wrong that they do. Does God use evil individuals and allow them to bring about evil? Yes, he does. And see, he, actually, Grudem walks a fine line in trying to explain that God causes evil, but yet never does evil or is blamed for it. See, it's hard to reconcile that because of their theological point of view, but to understand, first of all, that God does not ordain evil deeds by mankind and telling them that they have to do evil. 
but the accountable, how can he still hold them accountable? Because he has allowed evil to occur. It's because of that guilt and that wrongful that each person born with that sinful nature. And it started, it did start with Adam and Eve and giving them that total free will of being able to choose. But to understand that moral creatures. And we see here, ultimately, uh, there's a, a, a term theologically called um, antinomy or what it means is that, well, we can't know it. But I would say, and Louis Burkhoff, who says, the problem of God's relation to sin remains a mystery. It must be clear that God is not the author of evil, nor the effective cause of any evil. But I want you to understand that in the cause of evil, God permits and allows this to go through, but he's not the author of evil. And while those who foreordained to say that God knew everything that was going to happen, he foreordained it, these events to take place, but he did use evil to occur so that we might understand more about who he is and his work. But he was not the direct cause of that. And that's what's important to understand for us. Because it is important to understand the complexity between God's sovereign, supreme sovereignty and God's attribute of love toward his creation. Because without understanding all of the evil that exists, the bad things that happen, we wouldn't understand the character of love, his grace, his mercy, but also his justice. And there's that balance. Because oftentimes we only dwell upon nowadays what it is in the modern church is understanding, oh, God is love. And that's why, because they've always preached and said, oh, God is love. We forget about that God is just and therefore must punish sin. Or understanding that we are sinful and do wrong and there is evil in the world. And so people are, are stuck and don't understand the complexity of that because they've only heard that God is love. But yet God is also just. And without that understanding that we are sinners, we would not understand the plan of redemption that we can receive forgiveness and eternal life. And so understanding that complexity, God's decree is defined and distinguished by Berkman as God's decree is his plan by means of which he has determined all things that relate to the universe, including his own actions towards it and all that comes to pass in it and of it. So the decorative will is where God commands things and they will always occur. In Ephesians 1, Ephesians 5, it talks about by the foreknowledge that God brought about these things to occur, the creation of the world. And that was not to be changed. But it's to be distinguished from his, what's called his uh, preceptive will. And, or what that means is permissive will. Because there's where, things where God decrees, but also preceptive, or the word precept, means, which means laws, or permissive will. God permits these things to occur when people don't follow the rules or laws that God has given. And he uses that as well, consisting of his command. God's unconditional will provides within his divine plan the decision to create the universe and provide a plan of redemption. The complexity of allowing people to sin so that they might understand who God is. Most people would say, well, why didn't God just create everyone so that they worship and adore him forever? but yet we aren't God. And greater love comes about because of when we understand the plan of God and who God is. If you knew that someone had to love you or had to do nice things for you, how much do you care about them? 
But if you think about those who choose to love you in spite of who you are, in spite of what you've done, even your parents, you know, they loved you. They changed your diapers. They thought, oh, you were such a cute baby. And you might have had the face of a St. Bernard, you know, I mean, but they still loved you. And not because they had to. You know, they didn't say, oh, this is my child. Whoa, man. You know, they loved you because not that you could love them back. And when we understand the love of Christ and sending his son to die on the cross to forgive our sins, to leave heaven. I mean, that's like saying, okay, you know, let's go to Minnesota in January, February, right? And leave the weather in there. Well, that's a limited viewpoint. But understanding is to leave something that is so perfect, the environment, and to come to earth and to take upon the sins of the world. God's unconditional will provides within his divine plan the decision to create a universe and provide a plan of redemption. And his decorative will or decreed will is that he decrees to occur either causatively or permissively. So it, within God's plan, there are things that he decrees that will come about, but also things that he decrees that he knows what will come about, what's called permissive will. He allows these things to occur secondarily. He knows what will take place ahead of time. And that's hard for us to understand. But we're going to look at next week. Boy, time is short. I'm, I'll, I'll just stop there because we don't understand God's plan. And I'm going to define and look at a little bit of the directive or the decorative will of God and the permissive will and then our response, the human response of how that works out in evil and sin. What should grasp this morning is that God is not the author of evil and that there is evil in the world. We won't deny it. But there is also the plan and purpose of that. And we can still praise God for what he's doing in our lives, even though we don't always understand it. Let's pray together.